How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, I will uh, give you all a few moments of silent prayer, time for silent prayer, so you can make sure that you are in right relationship with the Lord. Scripture teaches that when we're saved, we are saved eternally. We can't do anything to lose a salvation because we didn't do anything to get it in the first place. It was a free gift. But when we sin, it does break our ongoing uh, rapport with God, and there needs to be recovery, just like when you're a kid and you disobey your parents. There has to be uh, some sort of recovery from that so that your fellowship and friendship and relationship with your parents can continue. Scripture says we confess our sins, which means to admit or acknowledge our sins, and God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this time that we can come together to be encouraged by your word and just thankful for another day to serve you, another day to learn your word, another day to grow spiritually. Father, we are particularly mindful of the missionaries that we support. We continue to pray for Chafer Seminary, George Meisinger. We also pray for Jim Myers and uh, Igor Smoyar over in uh, Ukraine. Pray for Igor's wife, Julia, with the medical Uh, things that she's facing. We pray that that will work out pretty smoothly. Father, we pray for all those coming for the conference in June, that uh, they will have safe travel. Pray for those who are speaking, that they can get their uh, material put together and all of their presentations and everything done so that they can relax and enjoy the conference and the time of fellowship and studying the Word. Father, we pray for us tonight as we study your Word, that as we reflect upon what your Word teaches, that we may come to a better understanding of who you are in your person coming to a better understanding of what it means that you exist as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and the significance of that uh, in terms of our own spiritual life. Now, Father, we pray that you'd guide and direct our thinking as we study your word. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, we are studying 1 Peter on Thursday night, but during the last few weeks we've been looking at the implications of a statement that comes at the beginning of the... There we go. That comes at the beginning of the uh, of this epistle, and in verse three, Peter writes, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ." A phrase that's used three or four times in the New Testament, but we have to look to the context to see its significance, because the writers of Scripture don't just cite phrases because they sound good or because it's some sort of rote. Uh, statement or phrase that has been handed down because they're the ones who are handing things down. So they're not just saying this to say it. It's not some normal uh, phraseology or title that that you might expect. There's a reason that Peter would uh, put that in here in terms of what is said in, in the rest of the epistle. One of these, I think, is pretty obvious that in the epistle of First Peter, Peter is dealing with 
a group of believers, Jewish background believers, who are living in different areas, mostly uh, in the area of what we now call Turkey, in the western and northern and north and the, and the north central area of, of what is now modern Turkey. And they are dealing with a certain degree of, of problems. A lot of people want to identify these problems as, as persecution. But I don't see any evidence within the text that there's persecution. Historically, this is probably too early to, uh, to be any kind of a widespread persecution in the Roman Empire. They are not any different from the rest of us in that when you become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you become a target in the angelic conflict, and there are going to be challenges, there's going to be difficulties in life, and there's going to be a, a certain amount of adversity, and some may be much more extreme than others. And there are always the opportunities that we have where people who we think are our friends or our family turn against us because we are uh, basing our life upon the Bible, and we're basing our thinking upon the Bible, and when we start making decisions in our lives that are based on the Scripture, that uh, often has a very irritating effect upon those around us who don't base their life on the Bible. Paul and uh, his traveling companions, Silas and Timothy and others, as they were going through um, on their missionary journey, certainly experienced that in a number of different areas, and they experienced a lot of hostility from Jewish congregations. Paul's methodology was always to go to his synagogue first. He would go to a synagogue, and they would give him the opportunity to teach, and that might go on for a week or two or three or four weeks. Some places it lasted a little longer. Some places it didn't last quite so long. And then he would start meeting a tremendous amount of opposition from those within the synagogue who were rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, I can't imagine things would be any different for Jewish background believers and scattered throughout uh, this whole area in Bithynia and Pontus and Galatia and Asia. And so as as they were taking a stand for their belief that Jesus was the Messiah, they would certainly meet a tremendous amount of opposition and persecution from within the synagogues that they had been a part of, from other Jewish, uh, other Jews who were living in that area, and this would have caused a lot of problems. So I don't take the standard view that that this is some sort of Roman persecution. I think that this fits just the standard opposition, the trouble we all struggle with living in a fallen world, and then it might have been intensified because coming out of a Jewish context, they were facing opposition and hostility from that Jewish context. When we look at what this, what uh, Peter is saying here at the very beginning, when he says basically the word blessed in this kind of a context is the Greek word we studied, eulogetos, which means to speak well of someone or praise someone. So he's praising the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's emphasizing this relationship of God the Father to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's emphasizing the deity. If if God is the Father, then Jesus would, of course, be the Son. And we have traced this through the Old Testament, looking at the doctrine of the fatherhood of God in the Old Testament, the doctrine of the sonship of Christ, as well as looking at what the Old Testament taught about God the Holy Spirit. And we brought all of that together last time, finally covering uh, all of those passages and seeing that the Old Testament clearly taught that God existed as a plurality. 
that he existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you don't have a Unitarian or a, a, a Unitarian monotheism in the Old Testament, but there were various passages emphasizing the deity of other uh, persons that were worshipped, the Son and the Spirit. And this is important because when we look at these things and study these these statements in Scripture, the names of God were applied to the Holy Spirit and to the Son, as he's identified in the Old Testament, or the messenger of Yahweh. You, They were worshipped uh, in the Old Testament, and only God is worshipped in the Bible. No other creature is ever worshipped in the Bible legitimately. You have uh, the Son and the Spirit performing acts that only God can perform, and they exhibit attributes that only God has. So when you look at their acts and their attributes and the names that are given to them and the fact that they are worshipped, then the conclusion is that you clearly had three distinct persons in the Old Testament that were worshipped as God. That's the doctrine of the Trinity, that God exists in in one essence but in three persons. We see this uh, developed, as I pointed out last time, when we get towards the end of the opening paragraph, there's a focus on the fact that in the future we will be uh, tested by fire. Later on in Peter talks about we will have uh, meet fiery trials. We're tested by fire. That just means that there are going to be intense trials, intense situations and circumstances that we face in life. And that the only answer is to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ because he is God and he is related to God the Father. He has the resources to sustain us through these fiery trials. So we looked at the doctrine of the fatherhood of God in the Old Testament as well as God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Now I drew this diagram because this is really a very ancient diagram to depict the Trinity. At the very center, we have God, and God exists as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so each one is God. That's the uh, point of each of these uh, bars going into the center. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And then the outer circle has the statement that each is not the other. The Father is not the son, same as the Son. The Son is not the same as the Holy Spirit. In the early church, there was a, a heresy that was known as modalism. And modalism taught that, that you have one God that he shows up, sometimes he puts on a mask of the Father. Then a couple of weeks later he shows up and he puts on another mask. He's, he's revealing himself as a Son, and another time he reveals himself as a Spirit. You just have one God and sometimes he manifests himself in one of these three different ways. That's called modalism. And there are a lot of Christians who have some kind of modalistic idea, when they're, especially when they're young or new to the faith, because they haven't really thought through or been taught well on what the Trinity uh, really is. Then you have had another heresy in the early church, where uh, you you have the the Father is really the the, the one God, and He is uh, manifested as the Father until He manifests Himself as the Son, and then after the ascension He manifests Himself 
as the Spirit. So the Father is essentially the one who is on the cross. That was called, if you want a fancy word, that was called patripassionism. Patra meaning the Latin for father and passion, the word for suffering. The father suffered on the cross. That was just God. So these were Unitarian ideas. You go to a Unitarian church, then you will find people who believe that. That's their heritage, although most Unitarian churches today merge with Universalist churches, and their beliefs are all over the board. They're mostly some kind of New Age Eastern mysticism, anything goes, sort of relativism uh, relativism today. So this depicts the doctrine of the Trinity and gives some scripture references there to indicate that the Bible treats them as distinct persons, that the Son is not the same as the Father. The Son was sent by the Father. The Son is delegated certain responsibilities by the Father. The Son prayed to the Father. He's not talking to himself. The Father's not the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus prays the Father will send the Holy Spirit as another comforter. We'll see that verse as we go through this, so that the Holy Spirit is a distinct entity, a distinct person from the Father and the Son. And then in Acts 10.38, you have the same kind of statement where the Son is distinguished from the person of God, the Holy Spirit. So what we're talking about, as I said at the very beginning of this study, is the Bible depicts God as a person. He's a person. That is someone who has the, uh, the, the elements, the essential elements of personhood, so that we are able to have a relationship with God. And we as human beings are uniquely uh, qualified to have a relationship with God because we were created in God's image and likeness. Genesis 1, 26, 20, 27 states that. So that there are, there are uh, elements of our personhood that correspond to something in God. God is omniscient. He has intellect. He knows all things. But, and we come to learn all things, not in the way God does, but we have knowledge, so we have uh, we can think, and so there's rationality on the part of God and uh, on the part of man. God is uh, completely self-conscious, and we become God-conscious as we become aware of the evidence of God's existence in in the creation. And so that's part of of, of, of personhood. God makes choices and decisions. Uh, we do too on a on a different basis, but that too relates to personhood. So we are persons who can relate to God. God is the ultimate person of the universe, and that explains personality. Just as a side note, when you get into Eastern mysticisms and Eastern mysticism, various various views, whether it's Hinduism or Buddhism or or whatever. Uh, the ultimate reality is in the universe is not a person and it's not material. Problem there is that that how do you explain the origin of personhood if the ultimate reality in the universe is not personal? Then you're left with with well, how did this just this personhood develop that just spring out of nothing? Where did it come from? Now. Having gone through the Old Testament, I want to take some time and look at what the New Testament teaches. And I thought since when I began this, I quoted from our doctrinal statement as to what we believed about the Trinity. We have a short version of the doctrinal statement that's in the bulletin so that people can understand uh, briefly and uh, succinctly what we believe. But we also have a longer 
doctrinal statement that explains in detail what it is that we believe and why we believe it. And that's important for a number of reasons. Uh, part One thing that I'll get into some on Sunday, I had uh, uh, Pam send out an email the other day to, to folks on the email list, is that, that every generation, we know that every generation has to fight and secure their own freedom, but every generation has to decide for themselves what they believe about the Bible, what they believe about God, and what they believe about Jesus Christ, what they believe about theology and doctrine. And every seems like every 30 to 40 years within Christianity since the early 1900s, we have another battle over what we mean when we say that the Bible is the Word of God. Uh, in the 19th century, they said, well, the Bible contains the Word of God. So they started playing with the verbiage, and not everything in the Bible is actually uh, directly revealed by God. It just contains the Word of God. So there's parts of the Bible that aren't the Word of God. Well, that begs the question, doesn't it? Who's going to determine which is the Word of God and which is not the Word of God? Who's got the razor blade that can go in and divide these verses or, or phrases and decide wh- who and what really is in the Bible. Now, there was a liberal group of scholars back in the 90s called the Jesus Seminar, and that's basically what they did. They went through the Gospels, and they had uh, colored pencils, and and uh, they had a system of, I think, four or five different categories, and only one of them was that we believe Jesus very probably said this, and very little that's in the Gospels actually fit that category. There were a lot of things that they didn't believe Jesus ever said because they classified the Gospels as uh, as the writing down two or three generations later of the legends and myths that had grown up around Jesus of Nazareth as a result of the development of this sect coming out of uh, coming out of Judaism. So first of all, they had to say that we believe. Uh, we had to define what we mean by the Word of God. And so you found uh, people talking about inspiration, that God breathed out the Scriptures. And then after that, uh, there was an attempt to say, well, it's, it's all inspired, but it's not all right. It's not all infallible. So then you had to add the word infallible. So we believe the Word of God is inspired, breathed out by God, and infallible. And then you get a a couple of generations later, and they start to pick apart some words and details here and there, and you begin to have to add in phrases like verbal and plenary inspiration. Verbal means every word is breathed out by God, and plenary means every part is equally or fully breathed out or inspired by God. So back in... Uh, around 1800, you could say, I believe the Bible's the Word of God, and everybody said, great, we all believe that too, let's go on, and everybody meant the same thing. A uh, hundred years later, you had to say, we believe the Bible is the uh, verbally, is verbally and plenarily inspired or breathed out by God and is infallible in everything that it says. And then by the mid-19th century, uh, mid-20th century, you had to add the word inerrancy, that not only is it verbal, not only is it plenarily inspired or breathed out by God and infallible in everything that it it addresses, but it is also without error of any form in the original manuscripts. Well, now in the last 30 years, you always have this move towards liberalism, and among a number of 
liberal New Testament professors as well as Old Testament professors, they get around this. They sign the school's doctrinal statements. They're at Dallas Seminary, Denver Seminary, a uh, f- um, number of other seminaries that used to be the bulwarks of, of, of uh, biblical truth. And they say, well, it's inspired, but let's take Jonah. See, Jonah really wasn't swallowed by a fish. That really didn't happen. There was a Jonah, but those things didn't happen. That was just a parable. Well, now by calling it a parable, they're able to deny the historicity of it, but they can still say that, that well, the Bible is inspired. It's inspired fiction. And this is happening today. And there was a very insightful article written by Bob Wilkin, who's the head of the, uh, 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 what is it, Grace, Grace, uh, uh, what, Free Grace Association, and he wrote in their monthly newsletter a good expose of one of the professors at Denver Seminary. You need to read about this because these issues are very important. We're fighting these battles all over again as to whether or not the Bible is really the Word of God. So pay attention to those things. So I wanted to go into our doctrinal statement so that you just understand what it is that we have said and what is present in our doctrinal statement in a more, little more detailed, uh, detailed fashion. So I'm not going to read everything that's there, but most of it. We believe that God the Son is co-equal, co-eternal, and co-infinite with God the Father. Now that's a time-honored qualification demonstrating that in as many words as we can that God the Son is equal in essence in every possible dimension with the Father. He's co-equal in everything. He doesn't have more or less sovereignty, more or less love. He doesn't have more or less knowledge or more or less power or more or less presence. He is equal in everything. He is co-eternal. He, there's no beginning and no end, and he's co-infinite. That means in each of his perfections or attributes, he is infinite just as the Father is infinite. And the same with God the Holy Spirit. So he possesses the same divine attributes as the Father and the Holy Spirit. We believe the second person of the Trinity, the Son, agree to the incarnation in order to glorify the Father and redeem mankind from the slave market of sin. So he has a different role. He's one in essence, but he's a distinct person, and he has a distinct role within the Trinity. Now, this is what's really important. Within the Trinity, you have three persons who are equal in their being, but they are distinct in their function. They have different roles. It's like having a football team where everybody on the football team weighs the same, has the same abilities, the same capabilities, but one person's still going to be the quarterback, and one person is still going to be a running back, one person's going to be a center, one person's going to be an end, and uh, there's no distinction in their abilities, but they have distinct roles, and they have to stick within their roles. That's what's true about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, what's important about that is that relates to understanding society, that is a, a metaphysical or ontological concept that undergirds the whole philosophy of politics and society in Western civilization. It means that every person is equal before the law. Before the law. Every person is equally human and fully human before the law. But every person has distinct functions. 
Now, what happens in the gender wars over the last hundred years or so is they, they've, because they've left their biblical background, they don't understand that when they hear distinction of roles between men and women or parents and children, what they hear is that the person who is the leader versus the person who's the uh, subordinate, that they're not equal in person. If you say that one person should not perform in one area, another person should perform in that area, you're, you're being biased and prejudiced against the person who doesn't get to lead. That's not how the Bible looks at it. The Bible says we're all equal, but God assigned different roles uh, for men and for women, different roles for leaders, different roles for those who are members of the church, and different roles in many different areas of society. And you recognize those role distinctions, but everybody has to be understood to be equal. Now, if you're, if you're, uh, if you're Muslim and you believe in the basic metaphysics or ontology of Islamic philosophy embedded in the Quran, then you have a unitarian or solitary God in eternity past, and there's no basis for, um, uh, any kind of, uh, distinct, uh, or equality of person. And all you have is an authoritarian or tyrannical deity who who uh, orders things according to his arbitrary will. So that in Islam, uh, whenever anything happens, it's that, well, that was just the will of Allah. There's no basis for equality among uh, among the creatures. They are all just supposed to be completely subordinate to this arbitrary deity. And so Islam can never, ever, ever produce a culture that has respect for all individuals as individuals. It's impossible. This is why, and I said this when I was talking about this back in 2000 and after after 9-11, when um, under the Bush administration they were going to go in and they were going to bring democracy to the Middle East, it can't happen, it won't happen, it will never, ever, ever happen until you retrain those people to think outside of their Muslim philosophical system. It is impossible. But if you've rejected biblical truth as a framework for your own thinking, then you can't critically evaluate what's going on in different world religions. You're left to think that these are just preferences that people have chosen, but essentially they're all the same. And as long as you operate on that fantasy, you're going to consistently have problems. So what we believe makes a difference in how we live and how we do things. So this is why it's important to understand the essence of the Trinity, that all, that all three members are equal in essence, but they are subordinate in authority, and they have distinct roles, but that doesn't diminish their equality at all. When we look at God, the Holy Spirit, we say we believe that the Holy Spirit is co-equal and co-eternal and co-infinite with the Father and the Son. As God, he possesses the same divine attributes as the Father and the Son. And later on, we see his distinction of role. The Spirit is the agent of regeneration, sanctification, and comfort to those who believe in Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is a person just as the Father and the Son are persons. Okay, distinction in role. So that's all played out. And then there are scripture ref- references in each of these sections that talk about their specific, uh, their specific roles and, uh, how they relate to the Christian life. Okay, now.
Let's look at what the Bible teaches about the plurality of God in the New Testament. Probably the most important passage is the last statement that, that Matthew records Jesus making before the ascension in Matthew twenty-eight eighteen through 20. Jesus comes to his disciples. This is after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, and he gives them their marching orders for the church age. This is generally known as the Great Commission. And a form of it is found in each of the Gospels in, and in the first chapter of Acts. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. See, he's making a statement of authority there that he has the same authority as God the Father. That, that implies the equality of the Son to the Father. He's making a claim to be identical with the Father in authority that the Father has delegated this authority to him. And then he says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. And there's been a lot of people who have taught the grammar of this verse in different ways. I've taught it in different ways. You have an imperative there, which is to make disciples. That's the command for everyone, is to make disciples. But it's surrounded by three participles. It's usually translated as a command to go. It could be translated while you're going, when you're going, as you're going, assuming that you're going to be going and living out your life in some way. And as you're doing that, you are to make disciples. But the more I come to understand the idioms of Greek, the more I recognize that when you have a participle preceding an imperative, it off, often the participle that precedes the imperative picks up the, the, the thrust or the mood of the imperative verb so that it's correctly translated to go. Jesus is telling them this is what is, our, what is stated by the Holy Spirit, I mean by, by, uh, uh, Jesus in Acts 1.8 when he talks to the, to the disciples and he says, wait here in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes and then go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. There's clearly the statement there that they're to go. So they are to take the gospel throughout the world. That's the missionary ende uh, endeavor of the church. That's the mandate to personal evangelism for every believer. We're to make disciples. That's someone who's a student of the word, not just believers, not just getting them to trust in the gospel so they quit going to uh, have any, quit having an eternal destiny in the lake of fire, but their destiny becomes heaven, but to be trained. And then two things are, the next thing is mentioned is baptizing. And baptizing is important. It's talking about water baptism because in water baptism, you teach the significance or the meaning of water baptism, which is to be at, at our salvation, at faith alone in Christ alone, we were identified with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ so that that becomes the foundation for our spiritual life. Water baptism for a believer is important because it, it's just like when you go to a wedding. You go to a wedding and somebody's getting married and the bride and the groom are rehearsing their vows before each other. And as you sit there as a, a married man or woman, most people think, I remember doing that. I remember making those vows or similar vows to my spouse. And it's a re reminder and a reaffirmation of the vows that we made when we got married. And so every time as, as a congregation sees new believers baptized, 
as it is, if it's properly explained, they are reminded over and over again of how, in their experience, they trusted Christ as Savior, and at that instant they were identified with Christ in the death, burial, and resurrection, Romans 6, 3 through 5, and that means that they are now free from the power of the sin nature so that they can live to serve God and they should no longer live to serve the dictates of their own sin nature. So that's the purpose, and they're baptized how? In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so now you have this this emphasis on the three persons of the Trinity and the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In English, we tend to think of name as simply being a label, you know, like Peter Pan peanut butter or Post Toasties or Kellogg. It's just a label. But in, in the Bible, when you talk about the name of someone, you're talking about their essence, their being, who they are, all that they are. And so the, the phrase here, the baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has to do with the fact that all that we are in our new identity is related to the work of the triune God in salvation, in God's the Father's plan for salvation, God the Son's execution of that salvation, and God the Holy Spirit's application of that to us at the instant of our salvation. So that is emphasizes that we are to go and that, that the role of baptism and the role of the Trinity, and then Jesus finished by saying, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you to the end of the age. So in these uh, these three verses... The attributes of deity are for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are essential to understanding the significance of, of, um, of baptism. We don't have three gods. We have one God who exists in three, as three persons with three distinct roles. Then we have uh, another verse in 2 Corinthians 13, 14, which mentions the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and and the, that verse, it says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So there we have three distinct things that are mentioned with reference to each person in the Trinity. Again, treating them as three distinct persons. Now, when we come to understand Jesus in the New Testament during the time of the Incarnation, he, is, he clearly understood that he himself was God. He believed that he was God. He presented himself as God. He functioned and operated, although he was in the flesh, as God. He knew who he was. He had an accurate self-identity. And, he, he, and we're taught throughout the New Testament that Jesus was fully God. This wasn't some idea that came along later. There was a very famous book, uh, written by Schweitzer back about 110, 120 years ago, seeking the historical Jesus, and they haven't found him yet. Everybody makes little cracks about these things when they're looking for Jesus, and not too long ago CNN had a special, maybe some of you thought you could put up with that and you didn't, uh, looking for Jesus, and uh, I didn't know he was lost. But that's what they're looking for. They've been doing this ever since uh, Albert Schweitzer started trying to find the historical Jesus. What they mean by that is the Jesus we see in the Bible isn't the Jesus of flesh and blood who walked uh, in, in the paths of Galilee. 
That was the human Jesus. But but over the decades, all this other stuff, this mythology, these legends, and all this other stuff built up around uh, around him, and that got put into the Bible. So we have to, as as Bultmann put it, we have to demythologize Scripture, which means you start peeling off all of these layers. Now, one of the reasons this is important is this kind of thinking has so embedded itself in our culture that nobody really believes Jesus is who he is. And even as evangelical Christians, even though we say we believe Jesus is who the Bible says he is, our faith has been so eroded by the liberalism and everything in our culture that we don't really believe that in the radical way they believed it in the New Testament. He's God. He has all the capabilities of God. And so Jesus understood that. The writers of the New Testament understood that. And we have to understand that as, as, the, as, as Jews in the New Testament period, they were all monotheists. They're not trying to create some sort of new deity. They're not coming along and saying, well, Jesus is a second God. They are dyed-in-the-wool monotheists, and they're not changing it, and they continue to affirm that they're monotheists. Now, that's important because if the writers of Scripture clearly affirm monotheism, and they believe the Father is God and the Son is God and the Holy Spirit is God, either they have a new perspective on the unity and diversity of the Trinity and the Godhead, or, or they're nuts. They're absolutely crazy, and they've lost touch with all forms of rationality. And we ought to think about that because the writings of the Bible, the New Testament, do not reflect the writings uh, of somebody who has lost touch with reality and is, and is irrational. So if they are rational and they are writing in a manner that is consistent within themselves, then they are teaching something that is profound about the deity of Christ. Now, to point out that their monotheism, they're all raised as Jews. And the Old Testament clearly taught monotheism, that there's one God. Psalm 96, 5, uh, for all the gods of the peoples are idols. That's the first line. Then there's a contrast. But the Lord, see, he's in contrast to all the gods of the peoples. But the Lord, a singular entity, made the heavens. Isaiah 44, 6 and 44, 8, thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. How many people are there? Two. You have Yahweh, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, Yahweh Tzabaot, the Lord of the armies. Says, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. So the two of them say, besides me, there is singular verb. There is no God. Interesting. You look at uh, verse 8. Do not fear. Do not be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? See, there's only one God. Strict monotheism. Indeed, he says, there is no other rock. Now, on Tuesday nights, we're going to come to this phraseology because Hannah uses it in the, her psalm of praise in, in 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10. And what we see in a lot of passages talk about God, you are a rock. But what happens in some passages is rock is a nickname for God. Now, where else have we run across that? Uh, recently.
in Matthew. When when G, well, we'll come across it in a, in a little while in Matthew. I'm, I've already been studying past it, so I'm I'm ahead. Uh, Peter, G, Jesus says, "On this rock I'll build my church," and everybody talks about the wordplay between Petros and Petra, the name of Peter, and the and the big rock and the little rock and everything. And then Jesus says, "On this rock I'll build my church," and people want to say, "Oh well, is this building the church on Peter?" That's the Roman Catholic answer. Is this building it on the rock of faith? That's a lot of evangelicals answer. And I think what Jesus does is he does this. On this rock. Why? Because he's God. It's a claim of deity. He's talking about himself. The name, a name, a nickname for Yahweh of hosts in the Old Testament is rock. So we see that evidence here. Is there God is speaking? He says, is there God besides me? Indeed, there is no other rock. Rock becomes a synonym for the true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then in Isaiah 45, 5 and 45, 22, God says, I am the Lord. There is no other. See, Again and again, this strict monotheism pervades the Old Testament, and the disciples have all grown up in this. They're, they're not shifting gears. They're not saying, oh, we've become polytheists. They're not like a lot of Jews today who become enamored with Buddhism and Hinduism and all these other things, which is, uh, which is out there. I am the Lord. There is no other. There is no God beside me. And then Isaiah 45:22, look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. This is embedded in their thinking. They believe in one distinct God. And Jesus was a monotheist. When the, the um, rich young ruler came to him and says, Lord, uh, we, we, know, uh, we know you're a God because you, you do. You, oh, he comes up to me and says, you're a good teacher. Good teacher. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good but one. That is God. Again, Jesus is affirming monotheism, but in other places he claims to be God. So either Jesus is really confused in his thinking and his whole uh, self-identity is just all all uh, fractured, which isn't played out by the evidence, or he clearly understands a dimension to the existence of God that goes beyond the simple minds that can only only come to understand a strict monotheism. And the Jews of his day, the Jewish leaders understood that. In John 5.18, after Jesus had made another one of his claims to deity, they sought to kill him all the more. Why? Because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father and made himself equal to God. They clearly understood Jesus was claiming to be God. It didn't get past them. They knew exactly what he was saying when he made those, those kinds of statements. Now, the Old Testament teaches strict teaches monotheism that there's only one God. Jesus and the disciples had all been trained in uh, in the Torah. They all believed there was only one God. It's evidence everywhere in there. They were they were monotheists. When Paul and Barnabas uh, went to Iconium in Acts chapter 14, and the uh, people there thought thought they were they were Zeus and uh, 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 Mercury then they started to worship them. They started to 
bring things, offerings to them, and they they were so upset that they began to uh, rip their clothes and they began to to make a big issue that they couldn't be worshipped because there was only one God. So you don't see a shift in Christianity from a monotheism to a polytheism at all. Furthermore, when you look at Scripture, it's clearly understood that angels are monotheists, and in passages in Revelation where John, where an angel appears to John, John starts to fall down and worship the angel and gets corrected by the angel to not worship him because he's just a servant of believers. So we see a contrast between these two verses. In Revelation 1, John is on the Isle of Patmos, and the ascended, glorified Lord Jesus Christ appears to him in the garb of a judging priest. And when he does that, John writes, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. That's prostrate in worship. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. See, Jesus didn't say, Quit worshiping me. I'm a creature. He said, Don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last which is a title that's given to God, as we'll see in coming, as we come through this, in Isaiah, several places in the Old Testament. God was called the first and the last. So here's Jesus appearing to John. John falls down to worship him. Jesus says, and say, get up, don't worship me, which an angel says in uh, Revelation 19.10. But Jesus says, I am the first and the last, makes another claim to deity. In Revelation 19.10, there's an angel that has appeared to John towards the end. This is right at the time of the Battle of Armageddon. And John falls at his feet to worship him, but he, that is the angel, says, see that you do not do that. Basically what he says is, stop doing that. Get up. I am your fellow servant and of your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Don't worship me. I'm a creature. So, again, the worship of Jesus is profound because it's never talked about as being wrong. Thomas, one of the apostles, Doubting Thomas, who earlier had expressed the fact that he didn't believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead, and he says, I'll only believe it when I can put my hand in the nail prints in his hands and in the uh, uh, spear hole in his side and then when Jesus appeared to him he didn't do either one he fell on his face and said my Lord and my God and Jesus didn't correct him he was accurate he understood at that point in a way he had never understood before that Jesus Christ was God there were also a number of statements that Jesus made uh, throughout his teaching time during the incarnation where he claimed to be the Messiah uh, by claiming to be the Messiah, he clearly understood Isaiah 9-6, that he would be mighty God. We went over Isaiah 9-6 last time. So by claiming to be the Messiah, he was making a claim to be God. Secondly, uh, he, he understood that uh, he made a claim to that by using this phrase, I am. And in John 8-58, he was involved in a debate. Just turn. This is such an important passage. You ought to have it underlined. Just go over to John eight fifty eight. Jesus is in this confrontation, big blow up with the with the uh, Pharisees, and they they believe that they have it made that they're going to go to heaven because they're descendants of Abraham, and so uh, 
they're, they're accusing Jesus. It's a passage similar to what we've seen in Matthew 12 where they're accusing Jesus of having a demon. And as they go through this, this conflict, uh, Jesus concludes what he is saying in verse 56, saying, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Notice the present tense. He's treating Abraham as alive and Abraham as a living witness to the incarnation, to seeing, seeing uh, Jesus alive. He says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. And immediately the Pharisees are all, uh, uh, the Jewish religious leaders are all upset. They said, You're not even 50 years old. How could you see, have seen Abraham? Abraham died thousands of years ago. How can you see him? You're not even 50 yet. And Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And the Greek there, ego eimi, is an expression of the meaning of the name of God in the Old Testament of Yahweh, which comes from the Hebrew verb meaning to be. Uh, the, the, when, when he explains it, when God explained it to Moses, he said, I am that I am. So I am is the name of God. So when Jesus said before Abraham was, I am, he was making a claim to deity. And you may think, well, that seems a little bit obscure, but it wasn't to the Jews because look what they did in the next verse. Then they took up stones to throw at him. They immediately started to stone him because he had committed blasphemy in their idea, in their view. He was claiming to be, uh, to be God. We have other places that uh, come up that where uh, there's an emphasis on uh, on this as well. In John 4:26, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well. She is talking about the Messiah. And she says, we know that the Messiah is going to come. And Jesus said to her, and you lose it the way they translate in the English because they put the, um, uh, the, uh, the, the parenthetical phrase in between the I and the am. They say, I, the one who speaks to you, am he. But in the Greek, it's ego me. I am he. Again, he is making a claim to deity. I am he. I am the Messiah. The Messiah is the one uh, who is uh, who is God. The scriptures also make these various claims of, of Jesus' deity through the titles that they gave him. In John 1, 1, he is said to be identical with God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He is the Logos. He is God. The, Titus 2.13 Second verse up here, Look, we're looking for the blessed hope. That's the rapture. We're not looking for the rise of the Muslim Antichrist, like Joel, Joel Richardson. We're not looking for the rise of the ten-nation confederacy. We're not looking for signs of the times, because the next sign is the rapture, the blessed hope. We're not looking for the Antichrist. We're looking for Jesus Christ. Uh, the blessed hope and glorious appearing of who? Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, in the Greek, this uses that construction I mentioned several weeks ago uh, when we were first starting this called the Granville Sharp Rule, where you have two proper nouns, God and Savior, who are joined together by a conjunction and, but there's only one article and it comes before the, the word God. And by using that kind of construction, the writer would be saying that Those two nouns are equivalent. Jesus is God, and Jesus is the Savior. That's what he is saying, that that he is the God and Savior. So it's made a clear statement of the deity of Christ. And then in Hebrews 1.8, we read, But to the Son 
He says, and then there's a quote from the Old Testament that your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Who is being addressed? The Son. What is the Son called? God. So you see the Scriptures clearly teach in the New Testament that Jesus is God. 1 John 5.20 We know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ, that is the true God and eternal life. So the way this is stated is Jesus Christ is the true God and Jesus Christ is eternal life. How much more plain can you be that the Bible is clearly teaching that Jesus is fully God? He has all the attributes of God and he's given the titles of God. Not only that, we have numerous places in John where he uses this phrase, ego eimi, emphasizing that he is Yahweh. He is the I, the I am uh, in John 4.26, I just mentioned with the Samaritan woman. In John 6.35, 41, 48, and 51, he says, I am the bread of life. He is the source of life, is what he is saying there. Then in John 8.12 and John 9.5, he says, I am the light of the world. I am again. In John 10.7 and 9, he says, I am the door of the sheep. In John 10.11, I am the good shepherd. In John 10.36, I am the Son of God. In John 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. In John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 15.6, I am divine. Each time he said this, he's making a claim to deity. And he is applying the name of God, I am that I am, to himself. Each and every time. So the Bible clearly is making this, these statements across the board from all the writers of the New Testament that Jesus Christ is fully God. Further, in John 10.30, Jesus made the profound statement, I and the Father are one. We are equivalent. We are equal in all things. We are both fully divine. And then one of the things that I think is, we'll close with this tonight, but one of the, one of the evidences of the deity of Christ that I think is a little more sophisticated, and most people don't get into it that much, uh, is the way certain Old Testament passages that clearly talk about God are then applied to Jesus in the New Testament, which shows that the New Testament writers clearly understand that, understood that Jesus was God. For example, in Psalm 68, 18, which is an ascension psalm that would be sung as the, worship, as the priests would walk up to the temple to enter the temple, they would sing this, and in that they would say, You have ascended on high, talking about God the Father ascending to the temple mount, giving victory over Jerusalem to David, and uh, he has ascended on high and led captivity captive. That is then applied to Jesus in Ephesians 4.8. When he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. So Psalm 68.18, they're singing it to God, Yahweh. In Ephesians 4.8, Paul says this is what it talks about. It's talking about Jesus. He's applying it to Jesus' ascension. In Psalm 102.25-27, through 27, we have the psalmist praising God for creating the heavens and the earth. He says, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. And then in Hebrews 1.8, there's an introduction to several quotes from the Old Testament. 
It's introduced by the phrase, but to the Son, he says. And then there's a quote from Psalm 102.25, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. To the Son, he said, You, Lord. The Son is, is called the Lord in that passage. The Son is identified as God by the quote in Hebrews 1.10. In Isaiah 45, 23, uh, God makes a statement, Yahweh makes a statement that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. But in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul says that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, uh, uh, every knee shall shall bow of those in heaven, of those on the earth, and of those under the earth, that Jesus Christ is God, as it goes on the next verse. So that verse Isaiah 45:23 is applied directly to Jesus. In Isaiah 44:6 we read, "Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of Hosts." Verse we started with, so it's a good place to end. I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no god. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel. I my, my, my called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. So the title for Yahweh in the Old Testament is that he is the first and the last. But then we get to Revelation. At the end of the Bible, in Revelation one seventeen, Jesus is appearing to uh, John and says, Do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. And then in Revelation 2.8, again, uh, he is speaking through the or to the messenger of the church at at uh, Smyrna. It says these things says the first and the last. In Revelation twenty two thirteen, Jesus says, "I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last." So again, these titles of deity are applied to Jesus. So if the titles of deity are given to Jesus, the acts of deity are given to Jesus, the worship of deity is given to Jesus. The, the power, we haven't gotten there yet, but the power of deity is given to Jesus, then our only conclusion is that Jesus is fully God. And if Jesus is fully God, then Jesus is able to sustain us in whatever problem we can face when we understand what the plan and purpose of God is. And that's going to be the message in, in Peter. So next time, I'll quickly wrap up uh, just a few more points on Jesus' deity, and then we'll look at, at God the Holy Spirit before we go forward in 1 Peter 1-2. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be reminded of the, the tremendous person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is fully God and he is fully capable to handle any and every problem that we have, that you've delegated to him all authority, and that he is the one who empowers and strengthens us through God the Holy Spirit during this church age. And, Father, we pray that uh, our appreciation and understanding of who he is and the power he provides for us will be uh, expanded and developed because of what we studied this evening. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.